0: Hey everybody, I'm John Small and I'm Dan Bova and from the Entrepreneur Media Podcast Network, this is Dirty Money.
1: Investigators have called it one of the biggest corruption cases ever. You're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? I'm not guilty. You're the one who's guilty.
2: Hey, John. Hey, Dan. John, I have a question for you. Were you in, and I've known you for a long time, but I actually don't know the answer to this.
0: Were you in a frat? I was not in a frat. I was actually probably went to the one university that didn't even have frats. So I just have no experience. But I did, the only fight I've ever been in in my life occurred at a frat at Tufts University. And it was one of those fights where. The fraternity brothers wouldn't let us into their party and then a friend of mine started a fight and then I did the whole hold you back kind of thing where I was like hold me back kind of thing where I was like <laughs> this is crazy and then you know thought that uh somebody would hold me back and they didn't and I got clocked but um <laughs> so that's my that's my memory of frats. wow uh, but uh the- but I know they I know they're they apparently they're kind of popular
2: Yeah, I would say so. You know, I wasn't in a frat either. I went to NYU and the frat there was like one building and each (laughs) fraternity had its own floor. And I don't know, it was just, it was just kind of weird. But everyone knows about fraternities. Not everyone, as many people as you think might have actually been in them. And in fact, I'm gonna cite you uh, a statistic. Oh, I love when you do statistics. Oh, you! I know you love this. Uh, so this came from a uh, Cornell Greek Life website, which has since uh, disappeared. But at one point, it stated, and I quote: "While two percent of America's population, well only two percent of America's population is involved in fraternities." 80% of Fortune 500 executives, 76% of U.S. senators and congressmen, 85% of Supreme Court justices, and all wow. but two presidents since 1825 have been fraternity men. John, maybe we should have been in a friend. Yes, that was the problem. Well, so I don't, I don't read Greek life websites in my leisure time. <laughs> I actually read this in a great new true crime book called Among the Bros by journalist Max Marshall. We are going to be joined by Max in just a minute, but let me tell you a quick overview of what the book is about. Uh, It delves into the 2016 bust of five College of Charleston Kappa Alpha fraternity members and three of their friends who are part of a multi-million dollar narcotics network. Whoa! And if that doesn't sound dirty enough, these arrests came as a result of an investigation into the murder of a former student who was the son of a luxury real estate developer. This thing is super twisted and crazy. It is not Animal House. This isn't old school. Uh, This is some real bad business. So, I'm going to start. I'm going to stop summarizing and let's bring in the guy who can tell us this story and tell us the kind of amazing story of how he even wrote this book. Uh, the author of Among the Bros, Max Marshall. Max, welcome. Max. Hold me back. <laughs> yeah. Hold me back. Hold held me back. Hold him, held him <laughs> back.
3: <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never been held back before. Um, it'd be <laughs> Good. Useful. Yeah. Did you Um,
2: did you request the holdback or you (laughs) don't even get that far?
3: No, I've never even gotten that far. Yeah. I guess my friends, yeah, they're just they always stand beyond arm's length away. So they can't even even offer. But the but the Uh, next question uh, is, were you ever in a frat? I was, yeah. I was uh, I at Columbia was kind of a similar energy to NYU where it was sort of like, why join a fraternity in New York? But I I did and I think part of it is just unconsciously I was sort of programmed to do that. Like I went to an all boys school in Dallas and of like my, you know, my 15 friends of high school, 14 of them joined frats. My dad was in a fraternity. My mom was in a sorority. My aunts and uncles were in Greek life. So I guess I I didn't stand a chance.
2: Yeah. 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 (laughs) No one was holding you back from that. But um, so this book, I mean, it's, it's really it, it reads like a crime novel. It's it's just it's it's such a great book. So I kind of want to talk to you on two avenues of, uh, you know, what the story is about, but also just, you know, the way you wrote it and the way you went, again, uh, uh, about researching it. And I think maybe a good way to start with that is just to say, you know, what what made you want to write this book? How did you how did the story come into your life?
3: Sure. So yeah, I was in college at the same time as basically all the guys in the story from 2012 to 2016. And when I was in college, I saw a pretty shocking amount of Xanax. I, you know, when I showed up to college, I thought Xanax was something that parents took for international flights, but in fact, yeah. it's an incredibly <laughs> common party drug. Um, it mixes well with all sorts of things, and uh, most commonly, I mean, you could take it with, like, cocaine, you know, ease the paranoia. Hmm. People would mix it with weed to get twice as high. But the main thing is, like, you would have it with five or six natty lights and blackout as if you had had 15 beers. And uh, apparently, this wasn't the case for every generation. But for kids, when I was in school, that was often the goal. And Xanax made that goal very easy. Also, the hangover wasn't as bad. And, yeah, it was just this incredibly common party drug. But, of course, I also didn't know um, when I got to college that's one of two drugs that's so addictive, you can die from withdrawals. Wow. And um it really sort of got pretty bad for a few of my friends, guys who were dealing, guys who were dropping out because of use. And so it kind of was a few questions. One, this sort of generational question of, Why are a bunch of guys my age who have these safety nets, you know, social safety nets that are basically hammocks, you know, they have (laughs) everything going for them. Mm -hmm. Why are they blacking out on anti-anxiety tranquilizers? And then the second, which is sort of more of like a logistical question, really, is where are these pills coming from? Because they Mm. were, they weren't from Pfizer, they weren't from CVS, there were these chalky fake Xanax pills Mm. that were showing up in people's doors, you know, in these unmarked boxes. And after college, I became an investigative journalist, and I guess like investigative journalists do, I, I just got on Google and I searched Xanax bust fraternity, because I had seen a lot of this Xanax going through the fraternity system, and the first result was this article in the Charleston Post and Courier about these fraternity kids at College of Charleston using pledges to ship all this fake Xanax around. And the police claimed they'd found 44,000 Xanax pills in addition to a bunch of coke, weed... A grenade launcher all these things so it's like oh this is kind of an interesting story but then i was talking to a defense lawyer who let it slip that actually the police had confiscated closer to 3 million pills and never
0: publicized it and so then it kind of became clear it was something bigger huh that's crazy, so, man. Times have yeah. changed. Dan, do you remember Xanax back in your? Uh-
2: no, there was definitely none. I, I, I remember more everyone wanting to like stay up for like three days straight and yeah. and never stop. Yeah, there, there was. It wasn't the goal. the The pass out was uh, the 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 ultimate defeat. <laughs>
0: really? Uh, where I went, it was like green alcohol, dude. That's where it's it,
1: at.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Jägermeister. Yeah. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Well, well, I mean, I I think the thing is, and I had never heard this phrase until I started reporting the book, but there's this addiction specialist at Stanford, Anna Limke, who told me uh, about the phrase polypharmacy. And she was basically saying in past generations, you know, different people basically had their one substance. You know, there was a Cokehead or a pothead or a wino or whatever it was. I guess wino is more of like a, you know, 1920s. Phrase. Yeah. I, I mean, love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you old winos. But, uh, <laughs> but but now like the idea is po- uh, like polysubstance or polypharmacy, which is basically, you're mixing all these things. The phrase that kids at College of Charleston used was sidecar, like the little rig you put next to a motorcycle in those like mm. cartoons, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Instagram. yeah. So it was basically like Xanax is a great sidecar drug, like you'd stay up all night on a coke bender. But then like you start to freak out, you know, you're getting the sweats, take a QB, a quarter bar of Xanax, and then you're kind of calmed down or, you know, you're candy flipping, which is molly and uh, acid. And so you're having this crazy psychedelic experience. But also like if you take molly and acid, there's no way you're ever going to fall asleep. So then you bring in the Xanax or, Mm. you know, you're drinking a lot, but you don't want to be hungover. It's all this sort of like
0: these combinations, basically. I'm writing down You're, the combinations. I just yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah. I can send you a full list. Yeah, you. thank you. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, so when did you transition from? Uh, so you Google, but that that your your investigation didn't stop with uh, googling things. No so you uh you got quite close to the people involved in this uh yeah. in this in this ring so maybe if you could give us sort of a an overview of who these players were and then also i'm just curious like how did you get them to agree to speak to you i mean the first thing to say is
3: as opposed to like a cartel or sort of you know watching the wire or something when it's a very centralized drug ring the way this worked was almost like Mary Kay, Cutco, Herbalife, like multi-level marketing, where you had sort of all these sort of different upstarts who would buy their own pill presses, get stuff shipped in via the dark web, make their own pills, and then have these sort of overlapping distribution networks using pledges or friends or whatever it was to ship this stuff out. And it really ranged from Charleston to fraternity houses around the Deep South, Atlanta. It was this incredibly kind of complicated. Like all these vectors of you know the supply chain, but the main character in the book is this kid, Mikey Schmidt. He was College of Charleston, would have been class of twenty seventeen, although he dropped out. But when he arrived to CFC, he'd grown up in the Atlanta suburbs, and when he turned eighteen, he was still five foot zero and his voice hadn't changed yet. Mm. And then his senior year, he had this seven inch growth spurt, showed up to College of Charleston and you know when you're five foot zero and your voice hasn't changed i guess one response is to develop this kind of crazy confidence and swagger because if you want to talk to women whose voices are as high as yours like <laughs> it, you have to like <laughs> basically you have to like have a pretty special like twinkle in your eye and right. like, I, yeah and he did i mean he like you know he was dating like the best looking girl at his high school even before his voice changed and like there was yeah this sort of confidence about him but when he showed up to college of charleston College of Charleston's kind of this crazy place where you have these kids from the deep south, um, some from these old southern like very wealthy families, but a lot of in-state kids too. but then also you have kids from Greenwich and Westchester coming down. Hmm. And like there's this those are the real worst sense kind. of like global wealth at College of Charleston. Hmm. And the kids from like you know from Connecticut, they call a uh, they call it Camp Charleston. Or they call it boarding school without the nerds. Mm. It's like, you know, it's these, <laughs> wow. it's these oh, yeah. like it's these kind of like Hampton-y kids who are going to really like throw party. down a lot of money and party. <laughs> and so Mikey was entering this very sort of uh, intense social world. We had a few things going for him. He had a he sold a little weed and he had a pretty robust fake ID business, which is a great way to make friends in college. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And joined the Cap Alpha Order. There was already sort of this drug ring going on in the Kappa Ford on a low level. But by the time he dropped out moved back to Atlanta, within a few years, he was uh, involved in the Atlanta rap scene uh, and he was bringing cartel-grade cocaine from Mexico via Atlanta to fraternity houses around the Southeast and then getting these Xanax pills that were coming over from China via the dark web, being pr- pressed out in these pill presses and beach houses outside Charleston, hundreds of thousands of pills. um, And then those were centered around the South. And so basically you had this like cycle of cocaine from Atlanta, pills from Charleston, and then these fraternity houses all over.
0: What do you mean pressed out? Just a little bit of the science. So what happens? They they, they get, because I read a little bit about fentanyl and how we all know kind of how that's coming from China and Mexico. What did they do? Like, did they get it? How did they make pills out of what they were getting from China? So yeah, the, the, the
3: biggest change that I think's ever happened to college drug dealing is the event, like the dark web mm. before the dark web. If you wanted to be a college drug dealer, you know, you had to quote unquote, go to the other side of the tracks and find some guy who's connected to a gang or a cartel source. And like, you know, that's every parent's nightmare. And like the, there's always the scary stories of, you know, the Sigma Nu who crosses the river and ends up, you know, in trouble. But because of the dark web, like you wouldn't have to leave the safety of campus Wi-Fi and you could just get this stuff shipped. So what these guys would do is they would get alprazolam powder shipped from these Southern Chinese labs through this guy in Quebec, who would then basically smuggle alprazolam powder, which is the active ingredient in Xanax, into printer cartridges. The printer cartridges would cross the Canadian border, end up at these beach houses outside Charleston. These guys would rent a beach house basically every month, a different one. So they'd move the pill press around and they had this industrial pill press, the same stuff that's used to make actual, you know, Pfizer, you know, drugs, and they would run it through this pill press, make hundreds of thousands of pills a month with their own sort of blend of Alprazlam and then non-active ingredients. And then... They would ship some of it out again over the dark web now that it was in pill form, or they would use these pledges or these guys to sort of drive it around the South as well. And the guy who's running this pill press was a guy named Eric Hughes, and he was actually the first person in history to have his Bitcoin seized by the DEA. And so these guys were very early adapters um, or adopters, I guess either word works. Yeah, they adapted and adopted. Yeah. Yeah. But... All that's to say is, yeah, that's kind of the the supply chain on the the pill side.
2: And did they um did this operate like a well oiled machine? I mean, were there busts? Did the stuff oh did stuff always come over the border with with no no questions asked? How did that work?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons these guys got into Xanax, besides the fact is that the demand was just massive, is it's a Schedule Four drug. So um, there's no trafficking charge on the books in Charleston. You could get caught with 3 million pills or 3,000 pills. It's the same possession with intent to distribute charge. It's also odorless and very lightweight. And yeah, they really didn't have any problems. It was a bunch of white kids with uh, swooshy haircuts and nice cars driving from beach houses to fraternity houses And, you know, especially on the campus level, you're mostly talking about, you know, campus cops with golf carts and flashlights. Right. And so it ran very, very smoothly until about 2015. I think word got out in sort of the other side of Charleston, how much money these guys were making. And then a few guys who were more involved in like the more violent side of the drug trade robbed a few few of these guys. Because like, I mean, these guys are so uh, not ready to be robbed that one of them got tied to a chair, beaten with a gun. A Jimmy wow. John's delivery guy came to deliver him a sandwich. That guy got beaten, beaten up until he needed facial reconstruction surgery. And then those guys were looking for all these pills. And this called of Charleston guy after the robbers went away, he called the police to try oh. to get yeah and because you know he was used to the police working for him but then of yeah. course they came they're like well what were they looking for he's like uh... and he admitted he was like oh yeah i have a safe safety deposit box at a bank with you know a, you know whatever it was like sixty thousand dollars in it wow. so the police got, confiscated that jeez <laughs> but but yeah basically it ran very smoothly until patrick moffley was murdered um during spring break 2016.
0: So, yeah talk to us about that murder
3: so yeah, l- like you said, he was the son of a, a prominent real estate developer. His mom ran for Congress, was on the school board in Charleston, very like prominent South Carolina family. And he was involved in this drug ring. He was like kind of this, I, I found out, you know, the chapter 11 is like an oral history of Patrick Mothley's life. He was this sort of legendary figure in Charleston for like these massive parties he would throw and the fights he would get in. No one was holding him back. Like he would, he would knock people's teeth out and like He was this kind of crazy figure and like this womanizer. But all that's to say is on the first Friday of spring break in 2016, police came to his house a block from campus and found him lying on the floor with a bullet wound in his chest. He was holding Chipotle napkins to the bullet hole. And his body was surrounded by hundreds of these fake chalky Xanax pills. Mm. And because of how close it was to campus and because of who his family was, all of a sudden, the police got very interested in sort of, wait a minute, why, you know, why is this kid from this family? Why is he surrounded by all these fake Xanax pills? Yeah. And then at his house, they found a lease agreement to the stash house down the street. Um, and from there, the DEA got involved, the FBI got involved, the postal service, something I didn't know going into this, but uh, one DEA agent told me that the the U S postal service is the biggest tra- drug trafficker by volume in mm. the world, <laughs> right. because it's, it's so easy to ship drugs via the right. mail. Wow. They have, they have no, you know, there's so much going through the mail every day. They have no hope of, you know, searching or regulating. Yeah, right. it. Right. Um, and also I guess there's, it's a felony to go through some tamper with someone's <laughs> federal mail. And so like, you know, it, you can even be like, you feel a little protected that way. But anyway, they all got involved. All these kids started wearing wires on each other and kind of betraying each other, and that's how the dominoes started to fall. Um, but then, of course, in the end, um, only one character, Mikey Schmidt, is actually in prison. Most of them got away with it. So they all. Do you think he got a raw deal? Well, I mean, you know, compared to other guys who were accused of uh, the weight that he was accused of selling, you know, on a national scale or even in Charleston. He didn't get a raw deal, but compared to all the other guys in the drug ring, he's the only one in in jail. And so, yeah, he definitely and, you know, his best friend wore a wire on him in the fraternity. And so, yeah, he definitely, I think, rightfully
0: feels pretty betrayed. And then he was kind of the one guy who wouldn't like flip on others. I wonder if he changed his name to Mikey so he wouldn't be confused. With the mustached Philadelphia uh, Phillies <laughs> third baseman Mike Schmidt, which
2: it's <laughs> <Mike. laughs> possible, that was yeah. a good call.
1: Hi, I'm Robert Tuckman, and I host Entrepreneurs: How Success Happens podcast. Each show, I get to interview a successful entrepreneur. Many have built some of the biggest brands in the world, like Lululemon, Warby Parker, Patrone, and Drybar. But here is the part I love because after doing hundreds. Of episodes, I've noticed regardless of one success, we rarely get to hear about all of the challenges they faced and overcame to get there. They all had to pick themselves up off the mat at one time or another. I love hearing their stories and how these people we find incredibly successful today are really just like you and me. They all faced difficulties, but they all kept going and got through them. On how success happens, we dive deep to find out how they overcame these issues. and what was it that drove each of them to keep going and never quit? Because let me tell you, they all face difficult times. It's a great podcast if you want to learn from the best while inspiring yourself.
2: a lot of the things that you said, including that you know, the 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 kid calling the cops after, you know, his uh, stash was robbed. Kind of a big theme in your book about like, why would these kids put themselves in this position? And, you know, you write a lot about how it's because they just, and you spoke about this briefly, but this, this safety net, like, yeah, nothing bad could ever really happen to them or they, they had that feeling. So they kind of operate in this like lunatic universe, not thinking there will ever be any consequences.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's almost it's like you're like wearing like the suit of the Michelin man or something. It's like nothing can hurt you. Or it's yeah. like, you know, like the the car in that uh Tarantino movie Death Proof where like yeah. the the, <laughs> the like the driver's seat is so protected that like you can do whatever you want. Somebody in the passenger seat is going to die. Somebody in the other car is going to die. You can do whatever. Right. And if you had a car like that, you would drive like a madman, you know, like of course you would. And so, yeah, I mean, I think like if there was one sort of eat your vegetables concept that I had while writing the book, it was like, what's the consequence of a life without consequences? If you can get away with anything, like, what will you try to do? And, you know, in some ways, they they had a the right read on the situation. Because even after this drug ring, most of the guys didn't go to prison. One of the fraternities, KA, left campus for four years, but it came back in 2020, and SAE, the other fraternity that was involved with this, never left campus at all. And so, hmm. like, I think they—they're right to say that they're in the sort of death-proof driver's seat.
2: Have the KA guys invited you back to for any speaking engagements?
3: Oh yeah, I would love to come, go to a tailgate or barbecue if they're, <laughs> if they're interested. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's funny. It's, it's like you know, a lot of the guys, the older guys who were in it, I think actually were. So I mean, some obviously don't want the story coming out and a lot of these guys got away with it. And so of course they don't want the story coming out. But then I think there are also guys who are like, God, that
0: was really out of control. And I'm, I'm
3: glad someone wrote yeah. about it.
0: Yeah. So now that particular drug ring was busted, but is, you know, where there's a demand, there's going to be a supply. Definitely. So do you get yeah. the sense it's still, it's still happening, right? But it's just, oh, maybe. Abso- absolutely. I mean, like, three or
3: four years after that bus, there was a bust of basically the same size at UNC and Duke. So, you know, not that far up the road. Deep South, man. Um, yeah. And it was the same thing. It was all the same MO. They're using GroupMe. They're like getting stuff shipped from the dark web from like California. And then from abroad, they're using pledges. I mean, it was truly the same. And like, it really is the dream setup for a drug dealer, the fraternity system. Because like, First of all, you have all these wealthy kids, kind of going back to that first quote you read from the Cornell thing, like all these kids from these families with so much money. I was, uh, one dealer was telling me it was like it was the dream. I could show up to these mansions, and there were forty customers all in one house. Yeah, and the only police is the campus policeman nearby. All these kids have so much money to spend. They don't even necessarily know the like, you know the proper price of an eight ball or whatever it is. and and it's all right there. Um, And then if somebody gets in trouble, these kids have good lawyers and, you know, the fraternities have their like sort of lobbyists and their insurance people, you know, like there's this entire scaffolding around it. But yeah, all that's to say is the demand is still there. I think the big change and you hinted at it earlier is the fentanyl has just gotten way worse. And even since I started reporting the book, there are so many more stories of the sort of one pill kill where somebody will... And also another thing that's changed is people get pills on Snapchat now, like you don't even need the dark web. And so guys will get these pills on Snapchat. There's no way of telling kind of the supply chain that it came from. And yeah, it only takes one pill cut with fentanyl. I've seen this, you know, a tragic amount of times as we all have. And like it,
0: it, it just ends in just like a very quick accidental overdose. I am so excited that I'm sending my kid to the university system next year, hearing all these stories. <laughs> but I wonder, you know, but I mean, and Dan, you Dan, who also has a, a child in in college, you know, I think our that generation, you know, now we're talking about kids that are like 17, 18, 19 years old. I think they're a little more sensitive to like, where did this pill come from? than maybe you were five years ago. So do you get that yeah. sense? Maybe that market is not as, I mean, there's always gonna be idiots that will take a pill, sorry to an yeah. idiot to a pill but i think you know like we've definitely schooled my son about like don't just take a pill that somebody hands you at a party and he knows he's like duh you know yeah so do you yeah think- d- yeah i mean definitely I, th- I think like
3: my generation you know about 10 years older was very much taken off guard because all of this stuff was just unprecedented and i think now you know who doesn't know someone who knows someone who is lost someone to fentanyl or who doesn't know someone who's you know like it's it's we're all one or two degrees a, away at this point from the opioid crisis and so i do hope that younger kids know yeah like you gotta know the origin of what you're taking but that have been said even if xanax isn't cut with something it's important to know that it can still be like yeah. really really bad news it's not one pill kills but it's like it can still ruin your life it's crazy like addictive quickly. right
2: yeah. So one one of the things in, in your book that I was I was surprised about, and, and maybe I'm I'm just uh, an idiot, but I have assumed that fraternity, be- like you know what we think of as typical fraternity behavior, like uh, the hazing kind of stuff, I had thought that that you know surely had to like chill out because people were getting kicked off campus and you know yeah. all this bad stuff was happening but you write about some some crazy crazy shit these guys were doing <laughs> yeah Had nothing to sure. do with drugs but just like really like above like what i would ever even dream of having someone else do uh the the the, the, the kitty pool vomit thing uh what's that
0: stay with me for the rest of the i don't minute. know if i want to know because it's i'm just eating my breakfast but what what is that <laughs> Um, I
3: believe uh, there are a few kiddie pool style vomit stories that I almost put in the book I think the one I there was like at Dartmouth there was a slip and slide but I think the one that I ended up putting in the book was at Duke and these guys like basically throw up into a kiddie pool full of vomit and then have to keep sort of drinking it and then re-throwing wow. up into it that's uh, the one yeah and then yeah I mean I talked to a guy who was waterboarded
2: so, so Max, what um, what are you working on now? Can you give us a, a hint of uh, I'm, sh- what 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 new crimes or or are you are you still in the drug beat? What what's what's going on for you? I so yeah, I have a podcast coming out this month
3: with Wondery and Meadowlark. It's part of in Campside. It's a podcast series. It's kind of like their answer to 30 for 30 because metal arc was founded by John Skipper used to be ESPN or the CEO of ESPN. It's called sports explain the world. Um, And I'm doing two episodes on this high school basketball imposter who was like this 27 year old street ball legend who had gotten kicked off his high school, college, semi-pro teams. And then when hurricane Harvey happened, decided to re-enroll in high school as a 17 year old freshman (laughs) scored 40 (laughs) points a game. And, yeah, and now what's wow. a movie made out of his life. And Where do you find these stories? That one happened at the high school down the street from where I grew up in Dallas. Okay. So that's how I found that one. But uh, it is a lot of creative Google searches, honestly. <laughs> but there's talk about doing a Among the Bros movie. I'm talking to Sony's options, both the scripted and unscripted rights. So
0: working that's on awesome. that a little.
3: Um, and then going to take out a, a book proposal pretty soon here about a, a Texas oil tycoon. That's all, all I'll say, but yeah.
2: Wow. That, that, that's awesome. Uh, it all sounds great. I hope it all happens so we can, uh, so we can check it out. Uh, are you still in touch with Mikey? Uh, or uh, does he send you a Christmas card? How does that go? So yeah,
3: I mean, we were very much in touch for a long time. I guess we didn't really get into when when I started reporting, I thought I wouldn't be able to talk to him because he was the one guy in the the book who was in jail. But then I found out that there's a whole system of black market cell phones in prison. And we you know, he would have his phone confiscated over and over again. I think the last number in his phone is Mikey Schmidt fifteen or something. So, yeah, we talked for a long time right now. He does not have a phone, so we haven't talked in a minute, but uh, we have talked since the book came out. And yeah, I
0: will we'll definitely be staying in touch. Do you get that? Do you in talking to him? Do you sort of understand how he was able to be so successful? Does he have a sort of charisma? Is he a real like entrepreneur? You know, Dan, I always talk about this, but a lot of the people we cover on the show, you know, if they had just put their smarts to good things, you know, they'd probably be very successful. Uh, you know, in the legitimate business world. Do you get that sense that he just had... Do you understand why so many people would kind of follow him off of-
3: Absolutely, yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, he he has
3: that charisma. He's incredibly emotionally intelligent. Um, He's very, like, logistically no bullshit. And he... W- which is very rare, especially in the fraternity world. He was able to sort of fit in and sort of move in, like, these sort of Atlanta rap circles... And these like cartel circles, but also these like very country club stuffy fraternity circles. Um, And so like that's a pretty rare skill because those are very different worlds. Um, And yeah, I mean, when he gets out, he'll still be young and hopefully we'll be able to put all that towards, you know, he definitely has a lot of kind of startup ideas. And and yeah, hopefully, you know, keeping everything on the legal side, um, I think he could be very successful. But it was funny, like m- multiple guys, sorry, real quick, in the drug ring told me, they're like, yeah, man, like, I, I wish I could put this on my resume because, you know, I got everything from uh, like logistics experience, sales, merchandising, <laughs> outsourcing, like, you yeah. know, like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> real entrepreneurs. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, what I, what I was going to ask is, did you, in all the people that you talk to, um, you know, painting this world of where people are coming from pretty wealthy backgrounds and it seems like, you know, they'll have a soft landing into the job world. Like, do you get the sense that some of these people like just sort of I don't want to say accidentally, but they thought like, yeah, this could be kind of cool. Like they didn't intend to get involved in some criminal enterprise. Or did they intend to do that? What do you know what their big motivation was? Cuz it couldn't have been just money. No, I mean, I think
3: for some guys it was basically I'm upper middle class at this school surrounded by like very, you know, truly upper class kids and they're going out seven nights a week and I want to be able to get bottle service with them. And that kind of guy was not really seeing it. As I'm a criminal, there are a lot of guys who really saw themselves as like, oh, I'm just a middleman, and you know, I'm just holding this for an hour and then I'm selling it to someone else. I get a profit, and I'm only dealing with the boys. I would never deal to someone who, you know, like I imagine you what a drug interaction to be. I'm just a middleman. Of course, when you get down to it, basically every drug dealer is a middleman. Uh, but then the guys at the top of the ring, they very much were like they were watching the wire. They were like talking in like drug dealer slang and they like saw themselves as like dope boy kingpin like they loved Scarface and they saw and I think rightfully saw that there was a lot of social status in being that guy
0: um, at the party that. Yeah, yeah. it's so interesting, but they had no fear of because Scarface doesn't end well. No. Uh, yeah. You know, none of these things ever end well. I mean, I've I've watched every episode, every season of The Wire many times. Yeah. There's a certain time when it all comes crashing down. I guess they just didn't think that far ahead or thought that they could.
3: De- definitely. Well, you know, it's like there's that quote, there's no such thing as an anti-war movie. Okay. And like this is the same thing. Like these guys loved Wall St- Wolf of Wall Street. And they didn't see it as a cautionary tale. They literally printed out shirts that called themselves the Wolves of King Street, which is the (laughs) like Bourbon Street in Charleston. Yeah.
0: And, and
3: yeah, they saw that, you know, that movie doesn't end well, but
0: like they just saw the, the first two acts. Right. Margot Robbie, you get to have Margot Robbie as a girl. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs)
3: like, they're like, they're like, okay, worst comes to worst. You end up in a white collar prison playing tennis and then you go in the motivational little speaker circuit. Right. 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 And so like, and, and yeah, I think the drug movies, it's the same thing. It's like, like, even if the, you could call Scarface a cautionary tale, but then if you're imagining, you know, Tony Montana sitting in his hot tub with like his, you know, like you're kind of like, that's the part you hold on to. Yeah. that's and interesting. yeah, that's certainly the part they imagined.
2: Well, well I'm gonna I'm gonna get right on that dark web then yeah well Max uh, so awesome talking to you and yeah, man. the book again is called Among the Bros it's it's a great read uh, besides just the great information uh, Max you have a great way of, of telling a story and uh, it's it's a page turner so heartily recommend people checking that out and any other things people should follow fi- uh, you on? You're an X.
3: I am uh, not, not on X. If you want to find me, my website's max-marshall.com. You can find my email on there and reach out. But yeah, the book's available. Amazon bookstores, Barnes & Noble, audiobook, wherever you get your books. I think there's a weird promo right now on Spotify. If you have Spotify Premium, the audiobook is free. Nice. So you slide Are you there. reading the audio audiobook? no they they got some some professional in there but uh but yeah it was it was he is is a very rich baritone i i gotta give Um, it to him right
0: (laughs) that's great thank you so much for coming on the show
3: of course yeah this was really fun thank you guys
0: dirty money is a production of the entrepreneur media podcast network it is produced by dan bova and john small with music by rich bova If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thank you for listening.